Hello and welcome to PFF Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Harditz, and today we're going to continue a two-part series that myself and my guest, Andrew Erickson, started two weeks ago. Tried to do this podcast last week. Unfortunately, my voice was so bad that about five minutes in, I started cursing at Andrew and mostly my voice, and we had to stop the damn thing right then. But feeling good, people. Andrew's feeling good. You're Hopefully, you're feeling good. And we're ready to talk some ball. So the purpose of this podcast, again, will be the AFC side of every team's wild card. Not necessarily fantasy players we want in 2021, but guys that we think people should be paying more attention to. So before we get into that, Andrew, what's going on, man? Happy uh, July 13th as we record this. Yeah, Ian, thanks for your voice. I had an, an extra week to prep, so <laughs> I'm fired up, ready to get going. Dude, fantasy football season is here. It's live. The fantasy football draft kit is live on the site. Make sure you go check it out. Ian and I, my hand, I'm still recovering. My my hand's a little blistery from all the, the blurbs we wrote up, but we're good to go. As always, great day to be great, everybody. So, yes, we're going to get going, starting with the AFC East. And, again, we're looking at wild card players that we cannot be forgetting about. And first off, Andrew, tell me about Gabriel Davis, who seems like the number three receiver, maybe the number four, though, after the Bills got rid of John Brown, replaced him with Emmanuel Sanders. That's the thing. Emmanuel Sanders has been getting some hype as the number two wide receiver on the Bills. But at the same time, I'm looking at these two different players. And Gabriel Davis is that receiver that goes downfield last year. 17.3 average depth of target was seventh highest in the NFL. He actually saw more deep targets than Stephon Diggs did last year. It was Diggs was really the intermediate guy for Josh Allen. And the funny thing was, we all kind of thought Diggs going to the Bills was going to be for his ability to, to win downfield but that really ended up not really being the case it was really him working intermediate it was gabriel davis that turned into this big deep ball threat he actually of the rookie wide receivers last year he was the second highest graded with pff grade 98.8 and that's really impressive because that was his thing he was getting a lot of high value targets he was seeing a ton of end zone targets he scored seven touchdowns last season so josh allen trusts him in the end zone downfield so if we're not going to get this insane target share from Gabriel Davis, the least we can ask for is targets that turn into a lot of fantasy points, which is think of what we're going to see from Gabriel Davis. And last year, Josh Allen, you know, he showed he could support multiple wide receivers in fantasy. You know, the Bills wide receivers scored more fantasy points than any other team last year, more than the Steelers. So again, if Beasley takes a step back, if Sanders isn't the same guy, then the points are going to have to come somewhere. And Gabriel Davis seems like a natural fit to take that step in year two. I mean, Beasley said himself, if I'm forced into retirement, so be it about this damn vaccination, man. So, like, there is a non-zero chance Gabriel Davis just starts the year in three wide receiver sets. I mean, Manny Sanders is more than capable of working out of the slot. And either way, man, like we, like you said, we already saw these sort of fantasy-friendly targets. He's getting and what he can do with it. I think sometimes I get too into the weeds with only looking at certain efficiency stats, which I, I think is a better practice in general than just going by counting numbers. But Gabriel Davis last year, 35 catches, 599 yards, seven scores on only 62 targets. Like that's all you kind of need to know with what he was able to accomplish. And before you yell out regression, 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 just note that usually hand in hand with the regression, if someone performs this well, comes increased opportunity, which Davis certainly seemed to earn. And I mean, as you know, someone that I'm always tweeting out the sheesh alerts on Sundays for nullified touchdowns, missed opportunities. Gabriel Davis had at least two, if not three touchdowns get called back by penalties. And these weren't, you know, him shoving the cornerback down and causing it to happen. Maybe the, you know, offensive lineman Holden shouldn't have done it and it made the play happen. Either way, wasn't Davis's fault. And the fact that, you know, he was a referee deciding not to be a dick away a couple times from nine, 10 touchdowns as a rookie, truly special season from him. Uh, and yeah, it's like, Andrew, who would you rather draft though? Like Emmanuel Sanders, Cole Beasley, or Gabriel Davis? It's still Beasley ahead of them, I think. Yeah, I think Beasley makes the most sense from his target share projection. It seems like he's like, I mean, I guess I would say he's the safest, but again, there is this this scenario where he doesn't play at all. So I guess I don't know how safe. I don't know. I haven't found myself drafting a lot of Cole Beasley just out of uh, purpose, I guess yeah. is the best way to put it. But I, I still keep leaning towards Gabriel Davis. I think Emmanuel Sanders, you know, he's a lot older now. I think he's entering age 30. I think he's 34. You know, he hasn't been a guy to post uh, really be a deep threat lately in his career. He hasn't had an A dot higher than 13 since 2016. So I think Davis, I like going out to the upside. And we find out that he's down in the pecking order. He's getting two targets a game. Well, then you cut him and move on. But I think that if he is the second target, then it's like, oh, man, like we have a player here that could flirt with double digit touchdowns. 
faux show. All right, moving on to the Miami Dolphins. Another receiver room that's a bit more crowded, I think, than people giving credit for. Right now, looking like the top six or seven, we got Devontae Parker, Will Fuller, Jalen Waddle, Lynn Bowden, Preston Williams, our old blast from the past, Robert Foster, Jakeem Grant, and Andrew. Someone you want to talk about. One, Albert Wilson, who opted out of last season, but previously did some pretty good things in this offense. Albert Wilson's interesting because someone else is going to have to step up in this offense during week one because Will Fuller is going to be on his serving his last game of his six-game suspension from last season. So presumably we're going to see Jalen Waddle operate out of the slot. We're going to see Devontae Parker work on the outside, and then it's going to be who else is going to be the other wide receiver. So there's like a ton of different names, but the buzz I've been hearing out of camp is that Albert Wilson has looked really good. And again, you know, in 2018, he led the NFL, like number one in the NFL in yards per route run because he was a yak monster. And that's what we saw Tua work really well with at the college level was these yak receivers. Before Henry Ruggs went to the Raiders and became this vertical threat, he was actually a lot better at Alabama because he was used after the catch on underneath routes, taking screens to the house, basically is what Henry Ruggs was best at. And, and hopefully the Raiders can kind of figure out what they're doing with him. But at the same time, someone's going to have to step up on this offense as one of these other receivers. Again, this receiver room seems like it's kind of wide open. I mean, Devontae Parker, look, is not a good fit with Tua. So I, I'm really concerned about how his fantasy outlook is going to be. I like Waddle a lot because I think that Again, like I mentioned, this isn't a very strong receiving core. And Waddle, look, Waddle has battled with Alabama wide receivers his entire career. He his biggest competition now is Devontae Parker. Like, so I'm a little bit higher on, on Waddle just in terms of how many targets he can see in this office potentially. But yeah, I think that's really important to kind of pay attention to which one of these receivers can emerge because they could be a really cheap option in DFS week one if it's someone that's a starting receiver against the New England Patriots. Against Stephon Gilmore can't cover everybody. So it's gonna be interesting. Yeah, I'm, I think kind of the discrepancy between Waddle and Fuller is interesting. They're all pretty cheap. I'm not saying Fuller is overpriced where he's gone, but Waddle is a 40, wide receiver 47 and underdog last time I looked, man. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of smart people thought he was the better overall receiver than Devontae Smith going into, uh, you know, the NFL. And hey, if he's in an offense that's going to feed him, you know, the short of a uh, sort of, you know, short targets that could really accentuate some of his long speed, look the hell out. My biggest takeaway from all this, why is anyone still drafting Mike to Sicky as even like a top 15 tight end. 20% of his snaps last year came as a true inline tight end. The Dolphins starting three receivers are Devontae Parker, Will Fuller, and Jalen Waddle. Are we going to completely see Mike Jasicki become this, you know, just inline tight end? I don't know if he has the blocking chops for that, man. I think we're going to see an annoying three-way committee between Jasicki, Durham Smythe, and Adam Shaheen, probably. That's not going to give Jasicki the sort of targets he was getting at the end of last year when their other receivers were Matt, Mac Hollins, Josh Perkins, you know, Lim Bowden. I just think Jasicki is like one of the bigger, you know, stayaways in this draft right now. Are you with me, Andrew? Yeah, I think that Mike Gusecki's kind of just like defaulted into the top of the tight end eight between like 15 range because we're just kind of throwing our hands up in the air with the tight end position trying to figure out who to go after. And I guess in Gusecki's defense, you know, he was a lot better with Tua under center last year. Like that's kind of the argument for him. But I agree again with these tight ends. You really want to get one of these guys that we can really easily project a target share for or really wait till like the double digit rounds because investing in this middle tier of tight ends has always kind of been not a great return on your investment because they look okay on the surface. But like you said, you know, there are a lot of question marks about Gusecki and what his role is going to be in this offense. And sure, he's going to have his splash weeks. Like he was one of the better tight ends in best ball that I kind of researched earlier this off season. But again, you can say that about a lot of tight ends and you don't know is his role going to change now if he's not moving in the slot as often. So there's a lot of question marks about him. Same tight end strategy for me as last year. If you can get Kelsey, Waller, Kittle, great. If you can't, we're waiting until, you know, tight end 12 or later. That's when you Troutman. can get Adam Troutman. Troutman. Exactly, Andrew. Exactly. <laughs> we're on the same page. Next team, we got the New England Patriots. Backfield is as ridiculous as usual. If you guys haven't checked out the fantasy file that was re released today on July 13th, I actually went through every backfield and the handcuff situations. And my big takeaway for New England was like, we could get two injuries here and still be dealing with like a three-back committee, man. It's just, it's same thing with Tampa Bay, you know, you know, and not even just Brady being there, but we have a bunch of running backs that are pretty one-dimensional, seems like, or at least the coaching staff's going to treat them that way, and we're not really sure how the pecking order is going to break down. With that said, Andrew, you want to focus on Ramondre Stevenson. Yeah, I think that Ramondre Stevenson is pretty interesting because I think that he has an underrated three-down skill set. 
from the fact that he can work as a goal line back. He's a bruising running back 2019. He was second in yards after contact per attempt among the 2021 draft class. And look, he's not going to be this three down back for the Patriots. Again, they have Damian Harris there, who's the lead back. I don't think there's any arguments. I mean, that's what all the news has been telling us. And it makes sense. He was PFF's third highest graded running back last year. So of course, they're going to make him their lead guy. He's a veteran entering his third season. So I like Damian Harris a lot. But again, injuries happen in the running back position. And it seems like the tried and true approach approaching the Patriots backfield has always been, okay, just draft whoever gets drafted last and usually it pays off. And that's the same with Ramondre Stevenson. You know, he's built like the boomer version of LeGarrette Blunt, <laughs> primary goal line back. And look, we saw LeGarrette Blunt score <laughs> like 18 touchdowns one season. So I think that Stevenson, again, underrated as a pass catcher. PFF receiving grade 83.8, ranked fourth highest in the class. So despite the LeGarrette Blunt comps, if Mac Jones is under center, he's going to throw to the running backs. And whether that's James White, whether that's Stevenson, look, he's going to find opportunities to put up points in this offense if he's given a chance because I think he's underrated. Yeah, whenever I've been doing these kind of like industry expert mock draft things, Damon Harris is going, you know, a good five, six spots ahead of kind of his average draft position. So the word on the street, people, is that Sony Michelle might not even make it onto this roster by week one. So we need that to happen. Otherwise, it's going to be an even bigger mess than we're already projecting. But yes, if it's Harris, White and Stevenson, all three of those guys are going to put up some big weeks. And obviously, Stevenson being priced far lower than those other guys. Moving on to the New York Jets, we have yet another annoying backfield. And people, one of the things we always preach on the show is like draft players closer to their floors than their ceilings when you can help it. Michael Carter right now is going far closer to his ceiling. This dude's starting to become a borderline RB2, even though we have no idea, one, if he's going to be a starting running back, and two, if that starting running back is going to be anything more than just a committee piece in this offense like i'm fine drafting him as the lead back in new york but andrew like tevin coleman ty johnson lamichael Pirine, josh like there's just other guys in here that hey could be a part of the offense i think my, my favorite is ty johnson I, that's definitely my favorite guy to take a flyer on look tevin coleman i think is honestly the favorite to get the first rep week one like with the starters but Will that last? Like, that's the thing with Tevin Coleman. We've seen this before where, yeah, he knows the system. He's great. But at the same time, like the guy has not been able to stay healthy. He's not been reliable over the past couple of years. So I look at Ty Johnson and yes, he is a carryover from the last coaching staff. They did not bring him in, but he's already been getting first team reps with the offense. Again, Tevin Coleman, I'm not necessarily afraid of in the long term. Michael Carter is obviously there like you talked about. But if it's a price sensitive thing where, OK, you want to pay round seven round eight draft capital for michael carter who no. could be the guy or would you rather just draft ty johnson with like the 20th round pick that you have that you're gonna just draft someone that's gonna get cut from your team anyway like you're gonna know if ty johnson has a role in this offense in week one then you can be like all right i'm ready to move on i'm gonna pick up you know the next mike davis of of 2021 but the thing with johnson is he showed he showed fantasy upside last year he rushed for over 100 yards and 22 carries in week 13 showed he could carry the load and i think that one of the things that pointed out to me about him that stood out was he finished third in the nfl last year in yards before contact 2.4 behind only raheem moser and jk dobbins and the thing with those two guys is like we know that those guys played in systems that were just like made to run the football like that was not ty johnson last year it's a it signifies how good of a runner he was, how his vision was that he was able to generate so much before contact. And I think that that's going to reflect well with this new zone scheme that the, the Jets are going to implement this year. I just hate these last two years for Tevin Coleman, man. He gets slandered a lot now on the old Twitter sphere as this, you know, just early down guy that isn't even explosive. Like, my goodness, the Atlanta Falcons version of this dude was you know, explosive as hell. It was borderline erotic. In 2016, him and Devontae Freeman, you know, on the league's number one scoring offense were fantastic. And, then, you know, he's always been a little bit banged up, but nothing like these 49ers years. I mean, for those that haven't been keeping tabs on this, I mean, he suffered his, in 2019, upon signing with the 49ers, he suffers a grade three high ankle sprain on September 8th in week one, like 20 snaps into the season. Dislocates his shoulder in the NFC Championship, plays through it like a badass in the Super Bowl, and then 2020 comes along and suffers a knee patella sprain in week two. Like, we just have not seen the healthy version of Tevin Coleman really since parts of 2018, when, to his credit, averaged a career high 4.8 yards per carry on, you know, a mid in a middling Falcons offense. So, yeah, man, basically 18 snaps in 2019, 36 in 2020 before 
before being hurt. He's got the San Francisco coaching connects that are now in New York running this offense. Either way, whether it's Ty Johnson, whether it's Tevin Coleman, whether it's Pirine, whoever it might be, there's a lot more obstacles, I think, for Michael Carter to get past than people are giving him credit for. Moving right along to the AFC North, we're looking at the Baltimore Ravens. Let's talk about everyone's favorite week one superstar. Does some good stuff in the playoffs too when he's healthy. Sammy Watkins, who allegedly, reportedly, has been the best wide receiver at Ravens camp. I mean, what would be more of a Sammy Watkins move than for him to leave the most fantasy-friendly offense in existence with the best fantasy quarterback ever and go to the Ravens who don't throw the ball at all and for him to be magically fantasy relevant? That, that sounds like a Sammy Watkins move to me, and that's kind of what we shouldn't be overlooking, I guess is the best way to put it. I don't know how much actual value Sammy Watkins is going to have, but I think it's enough where or he's going to be involved enough, at least early on, where we're going to not see so much value from potentially Marquise Brown, Rashad Bateman, until this receiving core really kind of settles itself out. Look, Sammy Watkins has a relationship with Greg Roman. Like he played under Greg Roman with the Buffalo Bills. He posted his only 1,000 yard season with Roman and Buffalo back in 2015. So there is a connection there with Sammy Watkins in this offensive staff. And like you mentioned, he's been looking really good at training camp. Again, I don't know how much we can necessarily buy into that, but the fact of the matter is it seems like he's going to have a role on this offense and he's kind of being left for dead for the most part. I mean, he's a really late draft pick and I'm not necessarily advocating for him as a player to target, but necessarily someone that we have to factor into the conversation of distributing these targets, which again, I expect the Ravens to throw a little bit more in this offense after bringing in so many wide receivers, drafting receiver in the first round, but it's not going to suddenly be 600 passing attempts for Lamar Jackson. We're going to just see a plethora of fantasy guys come out of this offense. It's not the case. So it's going to be dependent on where he lines up. He lined up out on the outside a lot with Greg Roman before. He's been playing the slot most recently over the past couple of seasons with the teams that he's been on. So it'd be interesting where he lines up, but it just makes it a little bit more complicated to try to figure out the targets in this offense, especially also with Devin DuVernay there as well. With all these good new receivers, are the targets going to be there? Not necessarily, but don't be surprised if Lamar Jackson gets back to looking a little bit more like the guy in 2019, moved him up to QB2 a couple weeks ago ahead of Josh Allen trying to project for that sort of equation. I'm with you, Andrew. The three highest cap hits on the Ravens offense. Number one, Ronnie Stanley. Number two, Nick Boyle. Number three, Sammy Watkins. Oh. <laughs> Five million fully guaranteed isn't nothing, man. And money usually talks in these sort of situations. I do expect Watkins to join Hollywood in two wide receiver sets. It makes sense that Bateman is the wide receiver three, but I don't know. Miles Boykin's there. Duvernay's there. You know, nothing against Bateman's talent. I'm not disagreeing that he could be, you know, a true number one, but he's really going to have to be special in a hurry because I just don't see anybody out here getting more than 90 or so targets. Like Mark Andrews could easily lead the way, and that's another factor we usually don't have to worry about with our wide receivers. So the league's most run-heavy offense suddenly has a lot of wide receivers that we all want to have targets, and there's a tight end that gets fed more than just about anyone. Not exactly the situation you should be, you know, running the target in fantasy land. Now we got the Cincinnati Bengals and a certain tight end has been getting some hype uh, recently. Now one CJ Uzoma was impressing last year in his, you know, what six quarters he played or whatever, <laughs> and putting up some decent numbers look good. He did suffer an Achilles tear though. And it's just funny to me how, you know, when Marlon Mack suffers the Achilles tear, everyone's just like, you know, it's an Achilles. There's absolutely no chance he's ever worth a damn ever again. But Uzoma, it's like, well, you know, we'll see what happens. So Andrew talked to me about uh cj uzoma and what, what what kind of role you think he could have in this offense six quarters of football but top five fantasy points per game for the tight end position okay again it's two games he got hurt in week two but in the first week one he was running a lot of routes so that's one thing to kind of just point out about cj uzoma again we talk about this offense how it's going to be centered around these three wide receivers which it should be but it's going to be 11 personnel which means that there's a tight end on the field, which means it's going to probably be CJ Uzuma because at least in passing sets, because Drew Sample is the other tight end and he is really more of a blocking tight end. That's really what he was at college is how he's been used. And even he seemed like he was kind of out of place when they tried to use him as a receiver this past year. So Uzuma and Joe Burr, if you want to buy into some narratives, look, they've been rehabbing together. Like, so there is a relationship. There is some rapport built between the two guys. So I think that that's something to keep in mind. Again, if you're best ball stacking, you need a tight end that you can get in the, in the last round. I think Uzma makes a lot of sense to stack with these Bengals receivers. And look, every time we we think we know who these late round tight ends are going to be, we're wrong. 
Like, so for the Bengals offensive coordinator to come out and say he's going to catch 50 passes, like, I'm not ignoring that. There's not a lot of tight ends. Like, did Chris Herndon catch 50 passes last hey, year? Hey, uncalled for, Andrew. Uncalled for. I don't for. think so. So I think that it's worth paying attention to. We love this offense. We love this offense. I think that's I think that's well known across the board. And we can't just pick and choose which ones we try to ignore of the players on the offense if they're going to be starting. And it looks like Uzoma is going to be starting. And like you said, we can't pick and choose whose Achilles injuries matter and which ones don't. So you're either in on the Achilles injuries or you're not. So you got to make a choice now, and I'm in on it. I'm in on Uzuma as a late-round tight end option. <laughs> Just for the record, Chris Herndon didn't even have 50 targets last year, let alone 50 receptions. <laughs> and, yeah, good call on the correct pronunciation. Uzuma, my bad. I'll work on that. And I also badly messed up Jason Light, Tampa Bay Buccaneers general manager, the other week. So I'm working on it, people. Please feel free to let me know when I sound like an idiot. I realize that is part of the job. And as someone with a messed up last name myself, should certainly be something I pay more attention to. Moving right along to the Cleveland Browns. Andrew, we got OBJ on one side, Jarvis Landry in the slot. The wide receiver three spot's interesting because we got Richard Higgins there. And we got a rookie that looked pretty damn good last year and Donovan Peoples-Jones. We're just not exactly sure, you know, how exactly it's going to shake out. And who's the, there's another guy they're going to be rotating. Not, is it Schwartz? Schwartz? The rookie. Oh, the rookie. Oh, yeah, from, that uh, dude can fly. Okay, no, Auburn. it's uh, Kadero Hodge, so that was the other guy oh, yeah. I was thinking of. So we really have three to four potential candidates for this number three spot. You're interested in Donovan Peoples-Jones? I think as you should. Low-key, this guy has, has a nice little, you know, I don't know if I can get a full minute of highlights from last <laughs> year, but I can sell you on a fun, like, 48 seconds. Yeah, he was really good last year in his unlimited opportunities. He was 10th in yards per route run, first in yards per reception, 21.7. So again, he's got the acronym already. So he's got OBJ on one side, DP or DPJ on the other side. It already works really well. Fifth highest receiving grade among the rookie class. That's what really stood out to me about him. Again, we're working with a small sample size because he was a backup. You know, he wasn't playing the full start out full amount of snaps, and he was a later round pick. So you didn't necessarily expect him to come out of the gates on fire, especially in a truncated offseason program where he just kind of was learning everything on Zoom. So I think that we could see him take a large leap in year two, take on a more significant role because the talent is there. Again, his college numbers are terrible because he played in Michigan, which, again, you don't need to go far to figure out why those numbers are not good. You know, the whole offensive was a mess for it's it's still kind of is a mess. You know, asking Nico Collins like it's it's not a good situation, but with the competition, like you mentioned, like Rashard Higgins, like he's okay, but he's, I think he has limited upside. Like, I think that Baker Mayfield trusts him, but I think from a talent perspective, I think Peoples Jones is a better player. And it's just a matter of him learning all the ins and outs of the offense and getting the trust of Baker Mayfield. And it seems like that trust started to build towards the end of the season. Again, he makes a lot of big plays. He was second among all wide receivers in deep ball yards during weeks 13 through 15, kind of when he was playing the majority of his snaps. So look, he's got big play upside. And I think that's the really the biggest thing here. Will they try to bring in OBJ a little bit more, keep him closer to the line of scrimmage and just use DPJ as the vertical threat? I could definitely see that happening. Pained me as I was watching UFC last Saturday to see Baker Mayfield there, not sitting next to OVJ, actually Hooper. sitting with Hooper and uh, David Njoku. And that takes me to my guy, <laughs> and it is Austin Hooper, because him and Tyler Higby, I think, could potentially be post-hype bounce-back options where they're going in drafts. I think Higby's getting a little more uh, you know, recognition this year because it's more obvious. Gerald Everett's out of the picture. Matthew Stafford now in town. We're expecting better things from that passing game. With Hooper, like he has a tight end 24 ADP just a year after he was going in the top 10. And no, Last year wasn't great. He finished as a tight end 21 and was the same in points per game. Still had a 90 target pace, played 70% plus snaps in all but two games. Yeah, Baker, you know, he fed Harrison Bryant 38 targets, David Njoku 29 as well. I mean, Hooper, though, still carries all that damn money. And as someone that is expecting Baker to take, you know, a nice leap forward in this offense, I think they're going to pass the ball more. I see OBJ having a nice year. This offense with that offensive line and everything could be a legit top five to at least 10 scoring unit. I'm not quite sure what they finished last year. Maybe a little better weather look uh, along the way and we get things moving. So I think Hooper has a chance, you know, where if he scores eight plus touchdowns, it wouldn't be the most shocking thing for everyone. And again, people, we can draft him at his floor compared to his ceiling last year. So he's not someone you need to get, you know, you're not going to take him in one tight end leagues. I, I'm not suggesting that, but particularly if you're in tight end premium and you see him, you know, hanging out there, Hey, it's a starting tight end on an extending offense. You can do a lot worse in fancy land. 
Now we got the Pittsburgh Steelers and Andrew, you have, you know, begun to carve out a name for yourself by being one of this guy's most prominent uh, supporters. <laughs> I will say, you know, as I was, uh, you know, I mentioned that handcuff article and podcast I was doing looking at the Steelers backs. I mean, if there is someone there where Najee Harris gets hurt and they want someone that can work on all three downs, could it be Kalen Balazs? I think it is because I don't think the team likes Benny Snell that much. We've been hearing that he's a cut candidate potentially. And I'm not really surprised he wasn't effective last year rushing the football and he's not someone you can use in the passing game. And Anthony McFarland seems like just a change of pace back. So they're not going to want to give him inside the inside carries necessarily. He's more of an explosive guy using the passing game. So for me, look at Kalen Blage. Look, man, say what you want about his, you know, famous 1.8 yards per carry in 2019. But clearly teams value him in some way, shape or form because he keeps getting jobs in different places. And again, obviously, with Adam Gase, he was not able to be successful, but he was a team's workhorse last year with the Chargers, who had a worse offensive line ranking than the Pittsburgh Steelers did. So at least we know Balazs can overcome with volume like all running backs can can overcome bad efficiency with their offensive line with volume because he was a fringe RB fantasy guy during that stretch. Average 15.2 fantasy points per game, 21 touches. And look, again, these backup running backs, these handcuffs that we're looking for are priced all over the board, which I'm sure you probably got into. And it's figuring out which ones are not priced accordingly with others where, look, if Najee Harris goes down, like I think it will be Kalen Balazs to be the guy and he could be seeing north of 20 touches per game and he doesn't get drafted at all. So again, I'm obviously, it's a little bit of a leap of faith to just assume he'll be the guy. We'll probably get more confirmation of that as things kind of weed themselves out throughout the preseason. But once we find that out, like that should be someone that we're drafting because if he's going to get any type of volume, even if it's like 15 touches per game with McFarlane working in, that's going to be something you're probably going to want to be able to use in fantasy. So I think Balazs is worth mentioning because a lot of the, there really isn't many wild cards on the Steelers office. It's pretty condensed for the most part. So I thought Balazs was worth a mention. 6'2", 228, got the 4'4 speed, 52 career catches. You know, that's why he's getting the chances. On paper, he looks like it, a solid enough three-down back that, yeah, we saw Adam Gase, you know, do Adam Gase things too. But that's happened a lot <laughs> over time. And we do need to remember, as much as the Steelers' backfield was annoying last year, I mean, in really kind of the last two years with the injuries they've been having with Connor and stuff, I mean, previous to 2019, man, this was the most like fantasy friendly backfield in the NFL from 2014 to 2018. The touches per start from these following running backs, Le'Veon Bell, 25.6, D'Angelo Williams, 22.8, James Conner, 20.8, Jalen Samuels when he was in there, 18, even Stephon Ridley's corpse in like week 17 averaged 17 touches per game. So God forbid something happens to Najee. I'm with you that Balaj might be the guy to take that over. I mean, Benny Snell, he's a I guess he's the favorite because he was that guy last year. He wasn't terrible every single game. He was game, so bad. I, I remember playing him and <laughs> wanting to literally hurt myself after playing him. It was, it was specific to that Wednesday night game. Don't mean to go off a tangent, but that Wednesday night game where Snell got stuffed at the goal line. Yeah. I'm trying to win a matchup from like three days ago against my opponent in a head-to-head -head league. Benny Snell just gets walloped by Chase Young at the goal line. I'm just like, well, it's done. And he never got any more yards. That was bad. As impressive as his 84 rushing yards in week 15 against the Bengals were, I think he might uh, be onto something there. Andrew, quickly, people, I just want to note that fantasy football season is here, and we are now offering 40% off any PFF subscription to all first-time subscribers of promo code SAVE40. You can get access to PFF's fantasy football draft guide, complete with our player rankings and projections, the college football preview magazine, the first edition of the 2022 NFL draft guide, as well as all of PFF's locked article content. Again, that's promo code SAVE40 for 40% off any pff subscription get access to all the pff's fantasy tools for just 5.99 what a deal everybody now we're on to the afc south andrew let's uh be quick with this one we got the houston texans my one note i have written down is everybody and nobody at the same time because the running back room you know burkhead Lindsay. Ingram, Johnson, seemingly four backs that are going to stay involved. The wide receiver room is arguably more gross, just filled with, you know, sleepers from like 2017 that haven't done anything <laughs> over the past three years. With all due respect to our guy, Brandon Cook, and, uh, you know, Jared's favorite uh, rookie, Nico Collins. We'll see what happens there. But you want to talk about potentially the diamond in the rough here, and I think you could be on to something. Jordan Akins, who over the years has always made the most out of his opportunities. The problem has been that Darren Fells has been a a little bit annoying for him getting the full featured role. Now Fells is with the Lions, meaning 
just maybe we can see Jordan Akins finally get that tight end one role that his talents have seemingly deserved. Andrew, are you in on Jordan Akins? My one goal of this podcast is to somehow increase Jordan Akins ADP. That's my <laughs> only goal from this podcast going in. I was laser focused. So, all right. So here's the spiel on Jordan Let's Akins. Go. All right. So number one, older tight end, 29 years old. Where we see tight ends usually break out, they're usually of the older variety. So, okay. 29 checks that box off. Most favorable tight end schedule to open the season. Easiest schedule at the position overall. Okay, cool. Okay, straight the schedule. Maybe doesn't matter that much, but still it works in his favor. Houston moved on from Darren Fells. So that was the biggest thing with Aikens last year was he was always working in conjunction with Darren Fells, and now he's gone. So there is a serious lack of pass catching tight ends necessarily on this team. Jordan Aikens is the, is the main guy there. He's the veteran presence, so he should be the one that is the tight end one. Again, they drafted a tight end from Miami and his name, Brevin Jordan. They drafted him. But again, he's a rookie. He's an actually rookie tight end. So I'm not really expecting him to necessarily seize a massive role in this offense. So again, you've already talked about the lack of pass catchers really behind Brandon Cooks, established pass catchers. I could argue that Jordan Akins is probably like right there with like on a Randall Cobb level. Like I think I can make that argument. Next thing, he never blocks. Like this is huge. And this is something that a lot of people know about just because this is more like PFF deep diving data, but his 24% block snap rate was the lowest percentage among starting tight ends in 2020. And the reason I looked more into these blocking numbers is because that's what did it. That's what did in Chris Herndon last yeah. year. Yeah, we know, Andrew. Like <laughs> Gase was making him block all the time. So that's not his fault. But Jordan Nakins doesn't really block. He's not a blocking tight end. So he's running routes. Last year, set career high in PFF receiving grade, which like 12th best in the league. And since 2018, he's sixth in yards after the catch per reception among all tight ends. Like, so he has the athleticism to make plays after the catch. So he can catch a dump off from Tyrod Taylor or Davis Mills, and he can make yards with that play. He doesn't necessarily need to have a super accurate quarterback. Last year, before he got hurt, he was averaging 35 routes run per game. We have Tim Kelly there as the same offensive coordinator who ran 12 personnel, 30% last year, third highest in the NFL. So there's a tight end role in this offense that is significant. Like there's a lot of tight end usage in this offense. And I think that Jordan Akins, look, I get why people don't want him because he plays on a bad team, but I could have said the same thing about Logan Thomas. And he was the tight end breakout last year that came out of nowhere. So I feel like I've listed off a ton of things that work in the favor of Jordan Akins. And the one argument is, well, he plays on a bad team with a bad quarterback. And then it's really easy to point to Logan Thomas and just say the exact same thing. Well, he got targets. Yeah. And that's what I think we could see from Jordan Akins. I mean, look, he's tight end 41 <laughs> on underdog. Like, I, I, I think that he definitely finishes higher than that. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's a very popular waiver wire pickup after week one when he comes out and has seven or eight targets in week one, maybe catches a touchdown or something like that against the Jags. So I think Jordan Akins, again, you don't need to draft him because, again, no one really is. <laughs> but just keep your eyes open and hear about Jordan Akins. The one guy that was consistently worth a damn in those Tyrod Buffalo offenses was Charles, Charles Clay, it seemed like, in Andrew. I hope that your spiel does get Akins <laughs> into that high 30s range uh, where he certainly belongs. I like it. And I was surprised when you said he was 29 because he's only been in the NFL for three years. And play so, baseball. I, no, hold on. You're, you're ruining it for me. And I go, oh, my gosh, he used to play basketball. Do we have you know uh -huh. the holy trifecta of like things going for our tight end? No, he played baseball out of high school, drafted in the third round, and then decided to uh, go back to UCF after the fact. So, hey, man, we're going to have to rethink everybody, everything we know about, uh, you know, basketball playing tight ends if the baseball player of all people ends up working out. But, no, good points all on, on there with uh, Jordan Akins. And, I mean, hey, like, we don't know that Deshaun Watson is going to be out the entire season. It certainly doesn't seem good. It's been forever since we've gotten an update. But, man, like, I've always maintained, man, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, if we can just give them one tight end in the offense, just quit splitting it up. One legit, okay tight end, that dude's going to be a potential 10-touchdown scorer every single year. Now, talking about the Indianapolis Colts. We got four wide receivers that we need to worry about here. T.Y. Hilton, Michael Pittman, Zach Pascal, and... The one that you were most interested in, Andrew, Paris Campbell. And I would note that last year we had exactly one game with everyone healthy. In that game, Campbell led the way with an 82% snap rate, TY at 80%, Pascal 62%, and Pittman at 53%. So I would expect Pittman to more or less take over uh, Zach moving forward. But it's looking like Paris Campbell is going to be the Colts starting slot receiver for however long the wheels stay on. And that's why I like him a lot in this offense. 
Carson Wentz has targeted the slot historically. The past two seasons, he's targeted the slot at the fifth highest rate. And when he was with Frank Reich in that offense, he was also targeting the slot at the fifth highest rate. So I think there's going to be targets inside for Paris Campbell. This isn't an offense that I envision attacking downfield whatsoever. We saw that with the Eagles last year, and it was a disaster with Carson Wentz holding on the ball forever, trying to get guys open. Nobody could get open, and he was just taking sack after sack. Like This offense worked last year with Phillip Rivers because it was quick, it was fast, it was not moving downfield. It was about screens and all those types of things, and that's what fits Paris Campbell's game so well. Again, at Ohio State, this dude was a crazy yak monster. He led his draft class in total yards after the catch, and that fits really well into this new Colts offense with Frank Reich again. Indianapolis finished with the sixth highest screen rate last year. And Paris Campbell also switched his jersey to number one. So I think that <laughs> means that the injuries are are gone. Again, Paris Campbell has... Look, people are just telling me that Paris Campbell is going to be like a, this year's Chris Herndon for us or whatever. And like, no, like stop. Like Paris Campbell is way different than that. I, I like his spot here a lot. And look, he was injury... Keenan Allen was injury prone before he wasn't. And that's how I feel about Paris Campbell. Look, he's had some weird injuries to start his two years in the NFL, but... He's the starting slot receiver. He's really talented. And this receiving core has no alpha. Look, T.Y. Hilton is absolutely, he's egregiously ranked in my rankings, but I'm, I'm just what people know is like, don't draft him. Like just, I have no faith whatsoever that T.Y. Hilton, like he'll definitely probably finish higher than I have him ranked just because he's on the field. I, I just don't want any, I have no interest in T.Y. Hilton whatsoever after last year. It's Paris Campbell, Michael Pittman for me and Campbell goes a little bit later. So, but I think he has a really secure role in the slot. And I don't think people realize, like, T.Y. Hilton isn't a slot receiver. I keep hearing this <laughs> randomly. Like, just because he's short doesn't mean he plays in the slot, people. He literally hasn't been a full-time slot receiver since 2016. Last year, he played 106 snaps in the slot, 638 out wide. It's Paris Campbell, man. He had 58 snaps in the slot in week one. It's, so even without Paris Campbell in there, they weren't even using <laughs> T.Y. in the slot. It's Paris's job. You know, I do think we tend to overrate, like, slaughter outside a little bit uh, in our analysis. Either way, this reminds me of you know the Houston Texans lineup last year where it's like hey okay it's we don't have the Sean Watson under center unfortunately but Carson Wentz even if he sucks he's still gonna put up some level of numbers he's not gonna throw for 2,000 yards the entire season and the cheapest I mean excuse me the most expensive Colts receiver is Michael Pittman as the wide receiver 48 like they're going to have someone that's gonna be more productive than a wide receiver four in fantasy I think Campbell has as good as chance of anyone he's the cheapest one available so good stuff there we are in agreement and yes people please for the love of god drop paris campbell over chris herndon this year and uh we'll just you know try to stop bashing on chris for the rest of this <laughs> podcast if you're listening chris i'm so sorry man i still believe in you all right jacksonville jaguars andrew i think this is your favorite number four wide receiver in the league mine is odd and tate everyone is aware of that but you love yourself some colin johnson i was actually just writing about uh this situation uh with lavisca and dj uh, right before we got started and you know i think it's a stretch to say colin johnson is gonna beat out chark or anything like that with that said he's someone and i think you actually tweeted this and it was well done uh he's someone that showed signs of playing big last year and urban meyer his one critique on chark was that he was a big guy that played small so tell me just how excited you are for the colin johnson era in jacksonville six foot six red zone monster coming at you devall country let's go big body wide receiver again first or ninth last year among wide receivers in target rate per routes run inside the 10 yard line and he actually led the team in yards per run overall so he was really efficient on the targets he had again when he was able to step in with some of the injuries that happened to chark and I think LaVisca at, at points down the year, it was him and Mike Glennon like had this weird connection. And it was kind of that thing where we sometimes see a backup quarterback develop a chemistry with the backup wide receiver because that's who they play with at practice. So we kind of saw that play out a little bit, but there's no tight ends on this team. Like, I'm sorry, like Tim Tebow is not a thing. Like, I know we talked about Jordan Akins. Like, no, like <laughs> I, I'm taking Jordan Akins 100 times out of 100 over Tim Tebow. Like, it's not happening. And I'm pretty sure Tim Tebow's ADP is higher than Jordan Akins. So fix that, people. But with no tight ends to speak of, you know, we usually see tight ends operate as red zone options. They don't have that. So I could definitely see Colin Johnson carving out a role where he is the primary red zone option in this offense, which could potentially lead to several spike weeks. Again, when he ever saw a 50% slap share, he led the team 20 plus yard targets downfield. So you know that he can make big plays down the sideline. I just think that he's a really versatile player that 
is better made for this type of game. Look, I don't think that he's going to catch seven, eight balls a game. Like, I don't think that's his game. But if he catches two passes, like I could definitely see them going for long gains or being touchdowns. So yeah. I think that he's a really good player to, to attach to the end of a best ball draft if you're, if you're stacking Jaguars players. Because I think that he's going to see spike weeks because of his skill set and the way he's set up. And like you mentioned before off the top, like if Urban Myers gets frustrated with one of these other receivers, he's like, hey, I just want my big freaking monster out there. Then Colin Johnson is, is literally sitting on the bench waiting to go in. This is your weekly reminder. LaVisca Chenault weighs in at 227 pounds, has been the star of camp. And even though we're not getting that slash roll, people expecting him to be the number one wide receiver in this Jacksonville Jaguars offense. DJ Chark, more than just a guy, but I don't think that he's necessarily done enough over the years to get the sort of kind of you know, like we're just assuming he's going to lead the way by a large stretch in targets. I, I think that's uh, false. And, you know, when you hear the Urban Meyer critiquing him, when you look at 2019 and you realize that the number two through number six target getters in that team are all no longer members of the Jaguars, <laughs> you can kind of see that it's maybe a new era here in the passing game. So, yeah, again, not saying Collins necessarily going to beat out Chark, but I do think, uh, you know, LaVisca has a great chance to, uh, you know, just be the number one outside receiver, even if we'd all prefer if he could be millennial Percy Harvin. But, Maybe, maybe another year. Anyway, Tennessee Titans, we got A.J. Brown, we got Julio Jones, we got Derrick Henry, but maybe just maybe there's a fourth member of this band. Could it be Anthony Ferks or Andrew? I was I pretty much buried Ferks after Julio Jones trade because I was just, I was, I was too like absorbed with how I had, how this was impacting AJ Brown. So I was like, you know what? Ferks are whatever dead. Josh Reynolds, pretty much dead. Josh Reynolds is pretty much dead still. So yeah, I'm not on Josh Reynolds <laughs> at all. But after kind of going back to the well with the Titans offense, it's like, look, there's still potential opportunity for Anthony Ferks. So they still had a ton of vacated targets from last year. They didn't really replace Johnny Smith. So they replaced Corey Davis with Julio Jones, presumably, but they didn't really play, replace Johnny Smith. So Anthony Ferkser still has a potential to carve out a role in this offense. We obviously saw him really be productive without Johnny Smith last year. Whenever Johnny Smith saw a 50% snap share or less than that, you know, Ferkser averaged 17.7 fantasy points per game. Like I mentioned with Jordan Akins before, Ferkser doesn't block. So he's like basically a glorified slot wide receiver, kind of like the new era Mike Gusecki. Just 1.2% of his passing plays was when he was blocking. And he's got a connection with, or he doesn't have a connection specifically, but uh, Todd Downing the new offensive coordinator for the Tennessee Titans. He had one offense in, with the Raiders in 2017. It was not good, but one thing that was featured was Jared Cook. Jared Cook, when he played on the Raiders, he had a really big role on that offense. He was second in routes run from the slot at the tight end position in that offense. So if you're looking for any type of carryover with a, or a new wrinkle in this offense, because it's not going to be the same without Arthur Smith. It's going to be a little bit different. Downey's going to have some input to change things. Hopefully he doesn't change a lot because this offense has obviously been really, really efficient over the past two seasons. So hopefully he's been taking notes while Arthur Smith has been orchestrating one of the league's greatest offenses. But if he's going to put a wrinkle on things, I think that he'll keep Ferkser in the slot. Julio and AJ Brown on the outside. And that's going to leave a lot of chances for him to see wide open lanes to kind of run through. Like the offenses or defenses aren't going to be preoccupied with, all right, how are we going to stop the Ferk daddy this week? Like, what are we going to do? That's not going to be the plan. So I think he'll find, will stumble into some fantasy production. Anthony Ferks or Johnny Smith in 2021. I'm still going to lean Johnny because I think that once we figure out which one of these Patriots tight ends is like fantasy viable, then they're going to be a top 10 option. It's just a matter of trying to figure that out first. I think it's a good point. I'm right next to each other leaning towards dropping Ferkser a little bit, but he's right there in that range. And I think a lot of people would have him quite a bit lower. So good points there. People, we have reached the final division, the AFC West, and we got to talk about the Denver Broncos. Andrew, you want to talk about the guy that's trying to send Drew Locke to the bench swag master 101 and for those that saw my tweet about the roller derby guy no that was a joke drew lock is not this <laughs> sensational roller derby guy it was just some random white guy who i jokingly says drew lock so with that not in the equation andrew you want to talk about teddy and i will say that you know when i went through these qbs back in may it pained me to do so but i did give teddy the chance and not the chance the most likely a scenario to win this starting quarterback job. Because as much as I love Drew Locke and that erratic nature that makes him so entertaining, doing a little thing called taking care of the football is usually in a better interest. And by usually, I mean always in the better interest of a team trying to win games. Teddy does do that well. Yeah, Teddy Bridgewater gives them the best chance to win football games. You look at this defense, it's absolutely stacked across the board. It's one of the only defenses that actually ranks in terms of PFF's rankings ahead of 2021. 
with a top 10 linebacker unit, top 10 secondary unit, and a top 10 defensive line now that they're all healthy across the board. And Bridgewater is a distributor. Like he can support, again, he gets like a game manager label and that's fine. I'm not going to deny that that's probably the best way to describe him, but he's super accurate with the football. Like third highest adjusted completion percentage last year. Drew Locke was last in that category. Like there's a clear difference between the two players and Denver knows they have a lot of playmakers on offense. And I think that they're just, they just went out and got a quarterback because they're like, just give them the ball. Like, we don't care. Like if it's two yards away from the line of scrimmage, 10 yards, like whatever, just get them, get our playmakers the ball and then they'll make stuff happen. And that's what we saw Teddy Bridgewater do last year. You know, he was him and big Ben were the only two quarterbacks to support three top 25 wide receivers. So We've seen Bridgewater do it. He's he also helped support Michael Thomas during the stretch when Michael Thomas was on his absolute tear, you know, his historic tear. So Bridgewater makes these players better. And I think that he's kind of undervalued in two quarterback leagues because you got Sutton, Judy, Noah Fan, Javante Williams, Melvin Gordon. Like he's surrounded by a ton of playmakers. And I think that's gonna make him viable some weeks as a potential streamer. And because of the ambiguity behind who's starting, the, who is the starting quarterback, again, there's only going to be one when it's all said and done. So I think it makes sense to take a stand on a quarterback and just say, okay, I think Bridgewater is going to be the guy. And I think that he's not going to be, when we're looking back on it, he's not going to rank 32nd in fantasy points. It's probably going to be Sam Darnold. Like if I had to be totally <laughs> honest, that's probably who it's going to be. But I mean, right now, if you're asking me who do I want Bridgewater or Sam Darnold, it's like, I'm taking Sam Darnold. Or, oh my God, <laughs> I'm, taking, I'm taking Teddy Bridgewater. I'm taking Teddy Bridgewater, please. I'm taking Teddy B. Teddy two gloves. We've been talking for 50 minutes and I haven't slandered Darnold yet. So we're going to try to keep that streak going. I think the great thing for Teddy, and it was almost similar to Wentz and actually to a lesser extent, Darnold last year, you can still be a bad real life or even a mediocre, whatever you want to call Teddy, a mediocre real life quarterback and produce some upside in fantasy if you run the ball. And Teddy was finally doing that in 2020. He averaged almost 19 rushing yards per game. That was more than he even did with the Vikings. He was such a non-threat on the ground with the Saints, probably because he was coming back from the horrific leg injury and stuff. But like it was I mean, truly, people, he played 14 games. He had 39 rush attempts. He had 36 rushing yards with the Saints. I mean, that's just absurd. He had 279 yards in 15 games last year. He had that touchdown, I think, against the Cardinals where he was, like, actually looking, uh, you know, shifty in the open field, making some dudes miss out there. So, yeah, I mean, if you got to pick between Locke and Teddy, it, it's got to be Teddy. Now, the qu- the answer is probably no. Like, please get a quarterback that's not going to be in that range. But I do think uh, the big takeaway from Teddy being under center is – you know, Jerry Judy season. Is the discrepancy between Sutton and Judy too big, Andrew? Is this one of these situations where we should just be scooping up Judy more than Sutton? Or are you confident enough that Teddy can enable both these guys since they are pretty damn good in their own rights? I love Cortland Sutton, so I'm definitely biased, but I also recognize that I am biased. And you're right. Jerry Judy's probably the better value. And honestly, he's probably the better fit with Teddy Bridgewater against Cortland Sutton as dominant as he is and as an alpha profile he is, Teddy Bridgewater doesn't necessarily feed an alpha receiver like a Drew Locke would potentially do, you know, throwing the ball downfield, giving him contested cat, giving him contested targets. I think that the skill set probably fits better with Jerry Judy. If Jerry Judy's just blowing guys open and, and he's just open all the time, I think Bridgewater might lean towards him a bit more. So, I mean, I don't want this to come off as don't draft Sutton at all, because I think that he's, just a really, really good player. And the numbers kind of back that up and he has massive touchdown upside. But at the same time, if you're asking me like, okay, like you want this player in this round or this player in this round, I'm probably going to lean towards Judy because he's going a little bit later and his skill set probably fits a little bit better with Bridgewater. Yeah, as I've racked up more and more, you know, best ball drafts, now I'm even starting to do some more sleeper uh, redraft mocks uh, and stuff like that. I, you, you start to notice these discrepancies and just round values with these receivers where I think people are just putting too much stock into one of them. It sounds like a good article I should maybe pursue later. But right now, off the top of my head, the five situations I have noticed with that Sutton and Judy, uh, I'd say Will Fuller being priced so far ahead of Jalen Waddle and to a lesser extent, Devontae Parker is interesting. Uh, Jamar Chase and T. Higgins going like 15 spots ahead of Tyler Boyd is egregious. That's a story for another day. We talked about the DJ Moore, Robbie Anderson uh, discrepancy being too wide. And the Brandon Ayuk going well ahead of Debo Samuel is very interesting to me considering if Trey Lance gets that job sooner rather than later, which history tells us he will, Debo is going to be the one that's going to have the best chance of not having his targets messed up considering how much he's pretty much used like a running back in the passing game. So keep an eye on those situations and remember people, if you can get that value you know, better later for someone priced closer to their floor, always a situation 
situation we want to take advantage of. Now we got the Kansas City Chiefs and Andrew, can you name the two, only two players, only two players have averaged more yards per target than me, Cole Hardman, among everyone with at least 100 targets over the last two seasons. Can you name them? Everyone with, so they have 100 targets combined. overall? Yeah. Oh, combined. So is one of them Marquez Valdez-Scantling? No, this, this isn't a trick question. They're two studs. Oh. <laughs> it's Meekles three. <laughs> Meekles three. Two guys Oh, so it's, uh, is one of them A.J. Brown? Of course. Okay. And the other one's is it's not Tyree Kale, right? No, good guess. Mm, Where's purple? Know. Oh, uh, Justin Jefferson. There it is, Justin Jefferson, AJ Brown, Mecole Hardman, most yards per target over the past two seasons. Obviously, Mecole is not even in those guys' same stratosphere in terms of real life wide receiver ability. Good thing we're not forming a real life team, Andrew. We're trying to get fantasy points. We don't give a shit how we get the yards. Style points don't matter in fantasy land. And I'm not saying Mecole doesn't look good when he's you know slashing through defenses and everything with his speed, but like okay, just because AJ Brown, Justin Jefferson are picking up their yards by you know big boy corners on the outside and Meikle's getting these you know uh, little pop passes it doesn't matter how they get the yards the biggest issue last year was Sammy Watkins Sammy Watkins is out of the picture we still got Demarcus Robinson still got Byron Pringle but when Meikle Hartman is now like going cheaper than he was last year it seems like a situation we should get back in on agreed there are some players that just take longer to develop and if you find a reason why look McCall Hartman played defensive back at Georgia so he wasn't some wide receiver coming in here and yes, I'm going to be the guy like I'm expected to do this and that. That was never the case. So I don't really think it's fair to label him as like a big disappointment when he's at best the number three receiver, but he's always been never featured in the offense necessarily. He's been used as more of a gadget player. I think that's how they were viewing him as a gadget player. It's like he wasn't really running these traditional routes necessarily. And they had Sammy Watkins, so they were going to use him. They were going to use some of these other guys, especially when they were trying to have Demarcus Robinson block. So there was a lot of other things that were going on, but look, I mean, he has a perfect passer rating basically when targeted or the highest passer rating when targeted among players, at least hundred targets last year or the past two years. And I think that the biggest thing that not enough people are talking about, and this is new to PFF is, is the threat rate. So looking at target rate per routes run and Nicole Harmon was one of the biggest risers in that category from his rookie season to year two. So on a per route run basis, he was getting targeted more often than his rookie season, which is a really good indication that Mahomes is trusting him more. Like the, it's not that he's running more routes and is putting up more counting stats is on a per route basis. Mahomes was actually targeting Harmon more than he had done in the past. So I think that's a really good sign for him to then take another step forward into year three, because we know the dude is super explosive. Like we know the guy's fast, like, and he's attached to Patrick Mahomes. Sometimes I think we overthink it where we're like, ah, oh, like he still hasn't fired. It's like, okay, well, what are the chances that a super fast wide receiver with second round draft capital that has like a perfect pass rating attached to Patrick Mahomes is going to misfire? <laughs> like, Think about it that way and instead of, oh, well, he hasn't hit yet, so he's never going to. So that's the way I look at it. And again, if any injury happens to Tyree Kill, he's one of these rare wide receiver handcuffs where, okay, if he's in a potential Tyree Kill role, like, oh my God, like he's going to have a ton of upside. And also, remember, people, we need to consider how old these guys are. So, Miko Hartman is literally a year younger than Dwayne Eskridge, who the Seattle Seahawks <laughs> just drafted in the second round of the draft. I just can't wait to keep using Eskridge's age, like in any single comparison uh, throughout the year. But yeah, you know, just like when uh, you know we talked about uh, here, I here I go. Here comes the Sam Darnold slander. Even when uh, you know I complain about comparing Tannehill to Darnold, like Tannehill fits the mold of someone that we should have expected to take a while. The guy play wide receiver to start at Texas A&M. Yeah, okay, it makes sense. He had more of a late career blooming. It would make sense with Mecole as well, to your point, where he was a cornerback for his first couple of years at Georgia. So, yeah, either way, hey, he's got Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid designing those touches for him. You know, it's one of these situations where if you don't have to use like a top 9, 10 round pick on him, I think he offers the upside to be more than viable where he's going in drafts. Another wide receiver situation that's a little bit unclear behind the number one pass game option. We're moving on to the Las Vegas Raiders. We all know Darren Waller is going to absolutely eat. Beyond that, though, things are a little iffy. Latest reports seem to be indicating that three wide receiver sets are going to be uh, Ruggs, Brian Edwards, and Hunter Renfro in the slot. Uh, but those will be the three wide receivers with John Brown offering some, you know, uh, boom just as a wide receiver four. Hopefully. Last year, that was the plan, too, and Nelson Aguilar ended up rising to the top of the pecking order. Andrew, you 
want to talk about Brian Edwards and his potential to have a nice little year two bounce back. I'm on hashtag team Brian Edwards over Henry Ruggs. And I just think that he's a better fit for this way that this offense is going to operate. Again, the Raiders ranked near the top of the league and vacated end zone targets from last year. And that's where Edwards has size, like six foot three. So he has a potential to be a bigger force in the end zone. And look, he only saw 14 targets last year, but was uber efficient. He caught pot. He caught hundred percent of them that were ca- deemed catchable. 146.2 pass rating when generated again, it's a small sample size, but we liked Brian Edwards a lot coming in because of his really early breakout age at South Carolina. So he was super productive early on. And that's usually a good indication that you're going to see future success at the NFL level. So whereas a Henry Ruggs has basically never reached any type of breakout threshold throughout his college at Alabama, whether it's because of the receivers he was with, I just think that Edwards has a better shot of potentially breaking out this year instead of a Henry Ruggs type player. I just get concerned when they're talking about okay, we need to manufacture touches for this guy because if you're a good player, you shouldn't necessarily need that to happen. Like you should be able to get open on your own and and command the ball. Like we talk about targets, how they're earned and how it's actually a, it's something that signifies talent. Like if you're getting targets, again, there's obviously rare cases, AJ Green, uh, where things (laughs) don't necessarily match the targets, but at the same time, I'm not thrilled that, okay, like more screens for Henry Ruggs. And it's just like, they're going to be forcing him the ball maybe when they really shouldn't be. And so I just, I have concerns about rugs long-term. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And as someone that was really high in Henry rugs coming out, it pains me to say that, but I, he has just as good of a chance as Edwards, uh, you know, to pop off this year. And obviously Edwards is the far uh, cheaper commodity at this point in time. So whatever you do, please don't take a uh, Hunter Renfro. Let's focus on these two outside guys. But I think the big moral of the story, people, if you can get Darren Waller in round three, God forbid he's available in round three, scoop him up. We're calling him a tight end. The guy's a number one receiver any way you want to put it. And it wouldn't be shocking, man, if he finally snaps Travis Kelsey. What is it? Five straight years now as a tight end one. At some point, Travis Kelsey is not going to be a tight end one. Perhaps not Kyle Pitts, but maybe just Darren Waller could be that guy to get it done. Andrew, we have reached our final team, the Los Angeles Chargers. You want to talk about Josh Palmer. I want to quickly talk about Joshua Kelly, though, because rumor has it Justin Jackson could be a cut candidate. You know, Kelly was someone last year that got a lot of hype early on. I think he had like 18 carries in week one or something crazy kind of got out of uh, favor in the offense. Jackson came and did some good things. Your guy, Kalen Balazs, came in, uh, was kind of taking over that job at the end of the year. With that said, Jackson's out of the picture. There's only six-round pick Larry Rauchy that could potentially take some, uh, you know, just work away from Kelly. He is so cheap in fantasy right now. I know the efficiency numbers were bad last year, but Kelly has a chance to be like a lower middle-class man's Melvin Gordon in this offense. He's basically free. I agree. I think that taking shots on Kelly or Rountree just – just guess because we, we really don't know like who which which one it's going to be because again the new coaches brought in Roundtree and Roundtree really profiles as a goal line back basically that's like basically what he did at Missouri he was a grinder up the middle just like picking up yards and that's what he did like that was the only thing that stood about his profile because he's not athletic whatsoever like he does not offer like any athletic upside I don't remember what his like 40 was but it was not it was not good <laughs> so yeah, because one of these grinder guys is probably going to have a role. Like, we've never seen Eckler just, like, come in and see, like, 25 touches per game play, like, 100% snapshot. That's not going to happen with Eckler. He's still going to get his and still be productive for fantasy. But there is going to be another running back that gets touches in this offense. And no one, because we don't know who it is, we're all just kind of, like, throwing our hands up. But just, like, take a stab at one of these guys. Chances are you're going to get one if we're getting indications that Jackson is the odd man out. And it seems like he's like kind of like the actual like primary backup to like the Eckler role anyway. Then you're going to get a, a competition between Kelly and Roundtree. So and it was yeah, the same I, thing in uh, New England. Like we weren't really on Damian Harris until we started hearing, hey, Sony Michelle could be a cut candidate. You know, Joshua Kelly was someone that I was pretty adamant. I wasn't on last year at all. But if you take away Justin Jackson, if you get the Chargers liking Joshua Kelly, better offensive line, doesn't really matter what I think. It matters what the Chargers think. It seems like they like the guy. So yeah, get this guy free because because we have seen this offense in the very recent history consistently enable a second fantasy relevant running back alongside Austin Eckler, who as our own PFF Nathan will tell you is anyone's idea of a first round running back in fantasy drafts of all shapes and sizes. But Andrew, you came here to talk about Josh Palmer. Let's hear it. Love Josh Palmer. 
he was a player that I was a little bit higher on than most. And when he went in the third round, I wasn't really surprised. A lot of people were because his numbers are pretty much terrible from from Tennessee. They're they're not good, but he had really bad quarterback play. 31% of his deep targets were deemed catchable. Dating back to 2019, so third worst in the class. It was not good, but the Chargers invested a third round draft pick in him. So I believe that he has, or he's the front runner to earn that wide receiver three spot. I think that's probably between him and Tyron Johnson because look, Jalen Guyton was, Jalen Guyton ran the 13th most routes last year in the NFL, which is just crazy to think about from a number three wide receiver because Keenan Allen missed some time and, and Mike Williams. But again, it was the guy that he was like the Demir Bird effect where it's like, oh my God, this guy ran like 800 routes last year, but it's like, they're just, wind sprints like that's like all he was doing was just running up and down the field wasn't getting any targets and that just kind of shows you that he was just kind of like a guy he wasn't really doing that much again appropriately named guy in just a guy so <laughs> i think palmer has a real shot to earn a bigger job on this team and really i think that he is a good way to combat any mike williams misfire i think mike williams is a really good spot this year but if for some reason mike williams gets banged up again does get hurt like Josh Palmer at six foot one, 210 pounds, you know, he is a bigger wide receiver that could potentially contribute in the end zone. That's where Mike Williams has seen a ton of targets, but has been pretty inefficient. I think that Mike Williams should, I mean, Mike Williams profiles as a guy that should be an efficient guy in the end zone, but of his 24 end zone targets the past two seasons, he's caught three, three for touchdowns, which is crazy considering the average of anyone that's seen that many end zone targets is like 12 touchdowns. So I didn't think that Mike Williams has some touchdown regression, but if he doesn't fire, gets hurt or whatever, I think that Josh Palmer can kind of come in. That was the one thing that kind of pointed out from his college numbers was he commanded a really high percentage of his team's end zone targets. And he's also really featured heavily downfield with a 17.1 average depth of target, which ranked 12th in 2020. So we know Justin Herbert's got a good deep ball. He can sling it down the field. So I like Josh Palmer as a dark horse for a standout rookie next year. Novel idea. Let's have a number three wide receiver that isn't just completely useless throughout the entire season. And Guyton and Tyron Johnson made some big plays. It's more of a shot at what they did in 2019 with Andre Patton. This was like my uh -huh. single biggest pet peeve that entire season because Austin Eckler, you know, completely balls out the first four weeks. Melvin Gordon comes back and they start going 50-50 with these guys. And by the end of the season, Austin Eckler had 599 snaps and Andre freaking Patton had 506. Like Eckler was not playing so they could put Andre Patton out there and just not throw him the ball the entire game. Andre Patton finished that year with six catches for 56 yards and no touchdowns on 17 targets and he was outplaying Austin Eckler more weeks than not. So yes, Chargers, please give me a wide receiver three that you plan on at least, I don't know, occasionally throwing the ball to or do the two running back offense and put an Eckler out there like you should be doing more anyway. But I digress. And that was a problem I'm going to try to leave behind 2019 uh, moving forward. But yeah, man, I think uh, particularly in dynasty land, like Josh Palmer, Diami Brown, even if uh, they might have a little bit of problem getting out there uh, in year one as much as we would like, certainly guys that I'm okay reaching a little bit ahead of consensus based on what we saw from them in college. People, if you agree and you want to try and make a buck off your fantasy knowledge, and if you like fantasy football, and if you like playing fantasy for money, you need to check out Underdog Fantasy. Underdog's got everything, including season-long and playoff best ball. Best ball is a season-long game where you draft a team like you normally do, but that's it. There's no in-season roster management. Underdog automatically selects your best performers each week, saving you loads of time. Go to Underdog Fantasy and deposit $10 using promo code PFF and get a free PFF Edge annual subscription. That's promo code PFF. Draft now at Underdog Fantasy. Andrew, you're always on Thursday nights, 7 p.m. for Underdog Fantasy? Yeah, 7 p.m. for Underdog Fantasy, but uh, it's going to be interesting because I don't know if you've heard this, but the entire infrastructure of the people not drafting running backs anymore, it, it's like real. And I was I was caught in the crossfire of it, and now I have a team that I'm currently drafting that I actually hate so much <laughs> because I had to keep taking running backs because the way that my team was constructed – that's what my plan was, but I keep getting, I kept getting sniped on the receivers I was going to draft. So I was like, all right, I'll just take a running back. Like it's good value here. And then all of a sudden I have like five good running backs. I feel good about, but I'm like, I have no wide receivers. There are no <laughs> wide receivers left. Like what is going on? Like it's bad. 
I have, I, it is starting to correct itself, though. I mean, like we're seeing like when Mike Davis and Travis Etienne were going like round four or five earlier. It's like, no, of course, we're not going to touch these guys here over top 20 receivers. But like, I'm OK. With, you know, the quote unquote RB dead zone, you know, it doesn't necessarily apply to that group of running backs. It applies to that group of running backs if they're going in the upper rounds. I mean, if David Montgomery is falling, you know, around past his ADP, we should be comfortable doing that, man. I've been trying to preach. Don't just take one of these damn draft strategies you hear about and go in and do that no matter what let the draft come to you agreed yeah i'm staring at rondell moore as my wide receiver three so oh my it's, gosh it's, uh, it's not it's not ideal do as i say not as i do or do as ian says <laughs> not as i do so but what we're gonna come back i got jalen hurts got a little jalen hurts dallas goddard stack because everyone kept sniping me on all the receivers i was trying to get so i couldn't put anything else together i got a lot of rookies so it's a uh, you know, it's it's a high upside. It's best ball, you know, whatever. It's impossible to win anyway. Just, you just got to do what I say, man. Like every time no one likes your best ball lineup, be like, hey, you got to be contrarian to win these things uh, sometimes and just hang your hat on that. All right, everybody. Thank you as always for listening to PFF Fantasy Football Podcast. New episodes out every single day of the week. And we got Andrew on here every Wednesday. And we will also be doing some team previews. Going to be going by division. We're going to start with the AFC West, I believe. Those should be out on Fridays here moving forward. So, you know, we're giving you the player outlook and these, you know, kind of more all-encompassing pods also want to go through team by team andrew what work you got over at pff.com this week it's all about the team previews yeah so it's, it's great that we are aligned this way where we're going to set up and talk about them on the podcast again i've been the last couple of weeks i've been just kind of taking deep dives into each of the teams looking at not just the players but taking it from a team level overview and kind of applying it down to the players you know looking at how often this team might throw next year how often they might they might run the football looking at offensive line defense trying to figure out from a team of what to expect. And it's just kind of like a, a check-in on my stances on certain players and if it matches where I have them ranked and with the actual team outlook. So it's kind of a reassurance for where I have players. And I'm making some slight tweaks here and there as I kind of discover new things about teams that I hadn't originally thought of when I originally ranked some of the players. So it's a good check-in. And make sure you go check it out. The PFF team just launched the landing page for it so all the written ones i think there's like eight or nine so far are up on pff.com and there'll be a new one pretty much every single day till they're all done great stuff while andrew is you know worried about very relevant fantasy things i spent my morning breaking down who earth should start in a football game against the aliens if a space jam situation arises i'm confident i can get this one published you know pff said hell no to my remember the titans film <laughs> review but you know I, i'm doing this whole 100 questions in a 100 day series arguably just so i can get this one single article published ahead of space jam's uh, release uh, space jam 2's release on friday so make sure you check that one out on thursday and if they say no i'll talk about it anyway because this is technically my podcast for as long as they decide to employ me so good stuff andrew thank you again for listening everybody and until next time take care